Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Bible Church Podcast. Always reforming because we're always conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. of Romans is a systematic journey of what it means to be saved, built line upon gospel line, precept upon divine precept. Paul's moved by the Holy Spirit to dictate with mere ink what would turn the world upside down by explaining what it means for the just to live by faith. The Christian mind reads these ancient words and grows in knowledge of the depth of the joy of salvation bestowed upon him. How many minds have experienced almost what am, almost amounts to a new second birth at discovering in the book of Romans the gospel that saved them is a gospel of sovereign grace. It is in the book of Romans that many first come across words like justification, righteousness of God, propitiation, predestination, glorification. Now the book of Romans contains the perfect combination of succinctness with length of material, succinctness in that every verse is rich in meaning, Yet there's enough material to feed the soul with the continual portions of truth. So then not only does God provide us with rich dainties to delight our theological palates, but he does so in feasting quantities. The truth in Romans is not unique and is certainly found elsewhere in the New Testament without loss of instruction or weight. Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians are all just as glorious. But imagine, but only imagine, and Ephesians had 16 wonderful chapters like the book of Romans. Imagine if Martin Luther had 10 more chapters of the book of Galatians to comment on. That is what we end up with a book in the book of Romans. The combined truth of the 16 chapters of Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, all in one stream of thought. No wonder the book of Romans takes its rightful place as first of the epistles in the New Testament order. Now, Paul seems to write this letter to the Romans out of sheer joy of the topic material. It stands in contrast to the polemic style of Galatians where he is reprimanding them for their entertainment of heresy. There is no problem or error apparent in the text which seems to be the catalyst for the letter. Rather, Paul launches into teaching on salvation out of desire to do so that the church in Rome may have a solid understanding of the grace that saves them. They were in a church that had a strong faith. Paul then desires to add knowledge to faith. Now the theme of the book of Romans can hardly be communicated in any one word. Salvation certainly works fairly well. There's always justification. Justification is indeed the article upon which the church stands or falls and is displayed with unprecedented clarity. There is, however, one theme found in every chapter of the book of Romans. One doctrine in this book unites all others and may be said to be the mortar that holds the building of systematic theology together. That doctrine is the law. If the mortar is applied wrong, then the bricks will be out of place. If the mortar is weak, then the whole building is liable to crumble. This fitting illustration is to show the importance of having a holistic understanding of the place of the law in systematic theology. The word law appears more often than grace, mercy, or even more than Jesus or Lord in the book of Romans. In fact, only the word God surpasses law in this book. In my personal experience, the law is largely ignored in public teaching. This is sad, especially when it's a behemoth in systematic theology. Now this quick survey through the book of Romans will examine the relationship of law to other doctrines. 
So let us get to chapter 1 of the book of Romans. Chapter 1 of the book of Romans. And we will begin reading in verse 16 through 22. Now this chapter begins with Paul's usual salutation lasting from verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 through 15 are almost like a second salutation as Paul reveals his great affection for the church that he has never visited. He evidently knew several people in the Roman church as chapter 16 contains a long list of acquaintances. So what we're going to do is look at the beginning of the law. The beginning of the law. What's what's the beginning of the law? If we're going to study the law, what's its origin? Where 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 do we start? Well, the beginning of the law is found in verses 16 through 22. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by those things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In this passage we find a juxtaposition between the genesis of the order of the progression of redemptive revelation and the experience of salvation. In other words, there's some correlation between the history of salvation and the order of man's individual personal salvation. Every history book begins with the first page, and you have to start somewhere. And the earlier you start with a history, the better. Now, all too often people come to the law and they start in the middle. They start with Moses. They start with Jesus. But who in their right mind would start a history book that begins in 1970? Well, you'd be missing over 200 years of history. And that missing history sets the context for understanding that of the events that happened in the 70s. So for our study on the law, we will go back as far as we can. In fact, we're going to go all the way back to eternity past. The very first words in Scripture are, in the beginning. Notice that the scriptures do not start with the beginning of God, but God starts the beginning. He was before the beginning. The eternal one moved and time began. Now this is God created. God created. It certainly implies several things concerning the relationship between God and the beginning. God wanted to create the beginning, didn't he? Since there was nothing, nothing could influence or pressure God in creation. Since there was nothing, nothing could pressure God in how to create. The order of creation was completely up to God. He was completely free in all things, bound only by his nature and wisdom. Nothing is impressed upon God at this point. Not even foreknowledge. Foreknowledge does not originate outside God, and it does not and cannot force any action upon God. There were no laws of nature to confine his choices because there was no nature. Non-existence can only have non-existing influences. So it's at this point, before the foundation of the world, that some try to impose human freedom or human autonomy upon God. And they limit to what God can possibly ordain. 
Now, there's a, certainly a wide variety of this doctrine. And really, the doctrine of a foreknowledge that predestinates God is not a predestination, but makes God a post-destination. Let me just read about uh, John Wesley in a sermon on predestination, which could be considered representative of the uh, majority view on foreknowledge. And first, let us look forward on the whole work of God in the salvation of man, considering it from the beginning. The first point, till it terminates in glory. The first point is the foreknowledge of God. God foreknew those in every nation who would believe from the beginning of the world to the consummation of all things. Then he goes on to uh, try and muddle the waters by uh, acknowledging God's transcendence outside of time and that all things are present to him at once. And uh, he has one point of view from everlasting to everlasting. The first and primary error is the oversimplistic statement, God foreknew those in every nation, those who would believe. You see how he's not beginning at the beginning. He's beginning with man believing and then working backwards to God's creation. The man-centeredness of this statement is evidence and how it looks backwards from man's perspective and fails to start at the beginning with God alone. This form of doctrine of foreknowledge takes what God chose to ordain and impose it back on God as an obligatory foreknowledge. God saw a believer and then ordained him to eternal life. This confounds the very history of salvation. Bringing in the transcendency of God over time is somewhat of a red herring and borders on being irrelevant to the doctrine of foreknowledge. The transcendence of God over time is in no way a denial of the linear reality of time. Time exists, and we creatures are bound and fixed in it. God certainly moves in time, and there is a real ordo salutis, an order of salvation. Such doctrine makes man's faith antecedent to God's foreknowledge. The order that Wesleyan foreknowledge demands is this, faith, foreknowledge, election, calling, faith, justification, glorification. This imposes a pre-existent yet non-existent faith upon God before the foundation of the world. And the fallacy of this doctrine is that it is a failure to acknowledge all the antecedents of man's faith. The above order of salvation points this out. How can faith be the antecedent or foundation of foreknowledge, and if that foreknowledge is the foundation and cause of our faith. Election and calling also precede faith, and faith is the result of calling, which may be considered one act of God. Now we can presuppose that God already knew what he was going to do. Since there was nothing, there was no pre-existing faith, since there was nothing, nothing could tell God what to do. God must have operated then completely from within himself. This has fundamental application for later on when men dream up doctrine that imposes the will of men on God and his creation. However, if we start at the beginning and work towards the end, it all fits together beautifully. Now, at this time when in the beginning God created, God certainly knew and ordained the entirety of the history of salvation. And this includes all the covenantal aspects of it. But this is not yet revealed. Now for the purpose of our understanding of the history of the law, 
in the book of Romans, Paul does not necessarily begin at our beginning. He starts off with a salutation and then jumps in to the power of the gospel to save. Let me reread the passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. This believing results in receiving the righteousness of God, which is revealed by faith. There is certainly enough material here for volumes to be written on these verses. But I would ask about the need for this salvation, which is by faith alone. The gospel is the power of God to save, but what are we saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God. So then it is more appropriate to ask, from whom are we saved? We are saved from God and his wrath. Now Paul then begins a section of thought that goes to chapter 3, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And this ungodliness consists of the actions of men that are opposed to their creator God. And this gives us our beginning in the history of the law. Next week, we will look at the relationship between the nature of God and the law. Thank you. <laughs>